This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door, run down to cell one, and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cell. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a special episode of Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today, we have one of our fantastic tour guides here at the Old Idaho Penitentiary, Camille Da, talking about one of her favorite subjects at the site. So welcome to the show, Camille. <laughs> yeah, thanks Thanks for having me. And it, it really is one of my favorite subjects, especially because of the, this might give it away a little bit, but the many escapes of this prisoner that I'm about to talk about. As many of you might know, we did have around 500 escape attempts, 90 of which were considered successful, and talking about those are one of my favorite things on tours. So I'm really excited to talk about this prisoner. So. Such a fascinating yeah, it's such a fascinating thing. I think people who are on tours are very yeah. interested in that. They always light up when you talk about then he went over the wall, mm-hmm. guns blazing, you know. So such such interesting stories. Can you tell us a little about yourself, Camille, and what brought you here to the old Yeah, camp? so um, the abbreviated version is that I've been working here for about three years. I started in 2019 after doing an internship with Minnetoka National Historic Site, which for those of you who don't know what that is, it is a national park unit, the 385th National Park Unit, of, or unit of the National Park Service. And Minidoka during World War II was a Japanese-American incarceration camp for around 13,000 people of Japanese ancestry. So that has been one of my research focuses for the past three going on four years and will eventually be part of my master's project um, on Minidoka National Historic Site. Along with that, I have also done various internships with, uh, right now, with the City of Boise, the Friends of Minidoka Group, which is the Friends Group to the National Park Unit, and then working here all alongside that. So it's it's been a venture, and I kind of like to tell people that my focus in history is in incarceration and confinement, which seems a little bit strange to some people, but that's really kind of what it's been for the past several years. Yeah, I know. We were excited when, back in 2019, we heard that somebody from Minidoka from this site wants to come and work at the old pen. It was like, yes, yes, let's bring her here. So yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad that... You know, we have somebody who's specializing in this mm-hmm. history. You said 13,000 Japanese incarcerees at Minidoka. Mm-hmm. And how? what was the time period that that camp was open? So, I, I mean, kind of ironically, the camp is celebrating 80 years uh, this year. So it, it opened in August of 1942. That's when the first group of incarcerees actually came to construct the site. So it was originally started by Boise Morrison Knutson Construction Company, which is kind of famous here in Boise as a construction and contracting company. But then after the incarcerates had been removed from their homes and sent to these temporary, euphemistically named, assembly centers, they were sent to the larger, um, more mass confinement sites, such as Minidoka. So August 1942 was when it first opened to those incarcerates. They didn't have plumbing yet, so it was outside latrines throughout most of the winter. Coal wouldn't arrive until November, so it was really, really cold that first year. And then over throughout the duration of the war, 
most incarcerees were confined there unless they were able to find school or work outside in the interior of the United States. So Washington, Oregon, and California, and then the very tip of Arizona were all places that they were not allowed to go into. But by October 1945, the camp was in the process of closing, and then by 1946, all the incarcerees were gone, and that's when they started auctioning off all the buildings and the land to homesteaders, veteran homesteaders stutters returning to Idaho after the war. Interesting. Wow. So like a three-year period, 13,000 people Mm -hmm. in Idaho's in Minidoka. Yeah. Yeah. It was considered the seventh largest city, quote, city at the time. So it was around the size of Twin Falls, I'm guessing, as population-wise. And just to compare, like the old Idaho penitentiary held... 13,000 people over a hundred and one year period. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, that's such a condensed time period for that many people to be rushed into a very small confined area in the middle of the the desert, essentially. Yeah, Yeah. well, and like like the old Idaho Penitentiary, the camp really did try to sustain itself uh, through agriculture. The Japanese-American incarceries essentially transformed the Magic Valley area from sagebrush and dust to what we see today, where it's mostly agricultural. And then also, like the old Idaho Penitentiary, that site had around 129 deaths, so pretty similar with those types of statistics as well. Mostly from old age, but then other causes as well. Wow. Well, definitely encourage everybody to go (laughs) out there, visit the site. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, support that site because that's a very important part of our history. That yeah. We definitely uh, want to avoid repeating, I imagine. Yes, yes. <laughs> Hopefully that is that is the goal. Yeah. And that's kind of the mission of which Minidoka stands for. So. Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, to completely change subjects, <laughs> back to the Idaho State Penitentiary here. Who are you going to talk about today, Camille? Yeah, so I am going to be talking about Ralph Poindexter, who is one of my new favorite prisoners. And I have a, I have a weird conundrum or difficulty with saying favorite, but he is um. very, very interesting. And I'm really excited to talk about him. The first prisoner number in Idaho is 10559. Um, But that's just in Idaho, so he has a lot before that. (laughs) So, okay, well, I guess I will get started. So I guess sources, there's... I mean, mostly mostly typical sources. So the Idaho Statesman, newspapers.com, Ancestry, his prisoner file from the Idaho State Archives. And then on Ancestry, I was also able to find his prisoner file from Deer Lodge uh, in Montana, so Montana State Penitentiary. I was not able to find other inmate files, but that is something that if I was able to do, it would be really interesting to see. But I guess... Those are my sources, nothing out of the usual. Oh, and the clock. The clock was... Yeah, he wrote quite a bit, actually. I was impressed by it. Yeah. Every time I see his name now, I'm like, oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, well, and he was both a very eloquent writer and speaker. Mm -hmm. He did kind of keep to himself for the most part, but when he spoke and when he wrote like it's just things that he said are so poignant and it's like oh my goodness i love that but it's also heartbreaking at the same time so yeah yeah so on february 13th uh, 1932 ralph poindexter was born to parents carl calvin poindexter and cecilia margaret poindexter in victor montana Now, Cecilia's maiden name was Hickey or Hiskey. I've seen both iterations, but the two, Carl and Cecilia, were married on May 1st in 1930 in Hamilton. She was 19 years old at the time of her marriage, and Carl was 20, so they were both pretty young when they had Ralph. But in 1935, the family moved to Hamilton, Montana, about 15 miles away from Victor, so about three years after Ralph was born. And by 1940, the family moved to Mullen in Shoshone County, Idaho. Now, at the time, Ralph has three siblings, two sisters and one brother. His sisters at the time were Dolores, who was aged six, so about a year older than him, Virginia, aged five, who was around the same age, and then James, who was aged three. 
Now, Ralph's father worked as a lead and zinc miner and only had a seventh grade education, and Cecilia only had an eighth grade education. Now, Ralph's trouble with the law began when he was about 15 years old, uh, so pretty young. After being caught stealing beer, he was sent to St. Anthony's Industrial School, where he stayed for about two years from December 29th, 1947 until January 13th, uh, 1949. So only two years after he was released from St. Anthony's, his parents divorced and Carl actually gained custody of Ralph and his sister, Virginia, which is a little bit odd to me because typically, and especially at that time, it was more common for the mother to receive custody of children. And so especially teenage children, it was it was a bit odd to me that his father gained custody of them, but then they were also teenagers, and that's not something that they really do. I mean, they would typically, what what they would end up doing is they might say it was custody of the mother, but then they'd just go live with the father if that's what they preferred. So either way, that was, that was really interesting to me. But on June 26, 1950, Ralph does enlist in the U.S. Army. Now, I do just want to take a brief pause from his story and talk about this clock article that he does write in 1970. And it does talk about his early experiences with drugs. So according to this 1970 clock article, he actually began smoking marijuana at age 14. So even before he was sent to St. Anthony's. And then at age 18, he had his first experience with hard drugs. He wrote that he first took opium at age 18 in New York City. So pretty early on, pretty young. And I assume that his first experience with those hard drugs was while he was in the U.S. Army. One of the reasons I am kind of guessing about that is because later in his life, and we'll get to this, but later in his life, he does talk about, well, there, there are reports where he does visit Mountain Home and Gowden Field Air Force bases and talks about his experiences with drugs. And so kind of connecting the two, I, I guess that he ran into those experiences while he was in the U.S. military. Yeah. And so that's why he went to those military bases to talk about those experiences. But regardless of his trouble with the law, on July 24th, 1951, he was arrested in Maryland for auto larceny. So four days later, he was charged with violating the Dyer Act and was sentenced to Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary as number 19486. So what the Dyer Act is, in a nutshell, is it just makes transporting a stolen vehicle or automobile over state lines a federal crime. So prisoners or individuals who were convicted of that crime would be sent to a federal penitentiary rather than a state penitentiary. So Point Dexter was also sent to a federal penitentiary. He was paroled on May 18, 1952, and at the time received a dishonorable discharge from the Army. That same year, his father does marry Ruth Levine in Kootenai, Idaho on October 17, 1952. Now, his father and Ruth were divorced sometime in the following year because on July 9, 1954, Carl marries Dorothy C. Lewis. And so we start to see this cycle where his father is marrying someone and then getting divorced and then marrying someone and then getting divorced and I, I don't think Ralph ever specifically wrote about this but pretty often what I saw is there's this pattern of when his father gets divorced and married again that's when he commits another crime but regardless after Ralph was released from Lewisburg for about a month he violated his parole again in June 1952 because of loss of contact, forgery, and auto theft. So this is another start of a pattern that we see with him where he's always getting in trouble for things related to vehicles and automobiles and stealing them and living kind of a fast life. Oh, I know. Well, some of them, I'm just like, I can understand why he stole that. <laughs> Not that I would steal it, Not but to like condone, but no, I, I, it's it's understandable. But a warrant was issued on August fifth. But by this time, Ralph had already committed his next crime. 
So on June 19th, he, quote, willfully, unlawfully, and feloniously take steal and drive away a 1947 Studebaker Champion coup, the property of W.J. Googler, with the intent to deprive the said W.J. Googler of his property, end quote. Ralph was arrested on June 21st, 1952, for both auto theft and forgery, but he escaped the county jail in Hamilton, Montana, with Thomas J. Medlin, who was sentenced to jail for disturbing the peace. So that's, yeah, he he steals a car, violates his parole, and he ends up in Hamilton, Montana County Jail and escapes. Any details on how, or was it? Not not on how, but his capture was kind of interesting. Okay. So the two men, they stole a car and they drive off, essentially. But he was recaptured about three days later after Ralph actually hit. Now, this, this was something interesting to me. This officer was listed as undersheriff. So I'm not quite sure what that is, but some type of sheriff, I think like second in command or something. But he was listed as an undersheriff, and I was like, I've never seen that before. <laughs> real fast, because I'm pretty sure it is like a, if, you know, he's like a vice president. Yeah, president. yeah. He's a deputy yeah. sheriff. The undersheriff reports directly to the sheriff and is responsible for the administration of three bureaus within the sheriff's office and serves at the pleasure of the incumbent sheriff. So, yeah, he's okay. he's kind of like... Okay. The next in command. command. Yeah, but more like secretarial, it seems like. Like kind of, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, second in command, either way. But under Sheriff Kelly Robbins with his shoe, and then he takes off for the other direction. Of course, he's on foot, so, but yeah, so kind of recapturing that. So the two men, they were essentially pulled over, so they pull over and the sheriff comes up to the car and Ralph opens his door and hits him with his shoe and takes off for the other direction on foot, but only with one shoe. So he's kind of hobbling away. And of course he's recaptured because you're not going that fast if you're on foot. So with, with a, a shoe? Yeah. So he takes off his shoe, like his boot and just hits him <laughs> over the head. And I'm just like, Okay. <laughs> I, I was. I, listeners can't see my face, but the first time you said shoe, I was like, maybe Camille misspoke here. I don't. No. Yeah. A yeah. shoe with a shoe. Is that like a nickname for a tie iron or something? No. Like he just hit him with I, a I shoe. I think it was okay. just like gut reaction, and and that is something that like I really kind of noticed with him is he has a lot of impulses like a lot of his escape attempts and a lot of these things that he does it's just on impulse and a lot of the times like he will be on a good path for a little bit and then just the shoe drops (laughs) the shoe comes off (laughs) yeah the shoe comes off and he just does something and it's like that is so out of character so i didn't see anything in his prisoner file about like a diagnosis as to why that was with mental yeah. health or anything. But yeah. yeah, it was something that I was like, oh, okay. But yeah, the, the shoe part was really interesting to me. That was something I recently, <laughs> recently uncovered as I was reviewing everything. But regardless, he is captured and he did plead guilty to grand larceny. And Montana courts sentenced him to three years at Deer Lodge, Montana State Penitentiary, which is also one of the four territorial penitentiaries. Like the Idaho State Penitentiary operates as a historic site and museum. And from what I've heard, they also do have a very great automobile museum there. So I guess it is kind of fitting with Ralph Poindexter. (laughs) And kind of a bit about his background before his crime took place. He had arrived in Montana only about two days before his crime. He was unemployed, but previously he did work at Hotel Spokane in Spokane, Washington, which his father was living in Spokane at the time of his crime. So he likely went to live with his father for a little bit, working, and then just took off for Montana. So with his prisoner file from the Montana State Penitentiary, this is kind of where we see some of the physical descriptions about Ralph Point Dexter. So he is five feet tall, uh, nine and three fourths inches. So 
I guess average for a guy. Yeah. To me, that seems a Five little nine. bit short, but maybe that's just because I'm used to really tall men. He was a Protestant. He had good teeth, good health. His inmate file said that he was of German descent. He had brown eyes, a medium dark complexion, so he does have kind of like an olive skin tone from what I've seen. He had a slender build, and he listed his occupation as a miner and baker. He does use tobacco. And then as far as scars go, now this is what we find from his prisoner file. This one is actually from Montana. So he does have dim scar on his right temples, a scar on the center of his right eye, and in between his eyes on his forehead, and then by his left eyebrow. He has multiple moles, scars on the first finger of the left hand, scars on the left side of chest, and on both knees and shins. Scar on the inside of the right wrist and back of left ear, and then a blotched scar on the left shoulder blade and in between shoulders and the center of his back. So lots of scars, lots of blotches, moles. What those are from, I'm not quite sure. Probably from, I mean, maybe getting into a car accident in his youth, something of that sort, but it's really, really hard to tell. But he was discharged on June 8, 1954, and was sent to McNeil Federal Penitentiary, likely to finish his sentence from his first charge in 1951 with the Dyer Act, since he had violated his parole. He spent 103 days at McNeil Island as number 24320. So he was released in August of 1954. But regardless... Is that maybe, was he paroled I, after? I think he might have been paroled. Yeah, I think he was probably paroled. From what I found, he was released, and then he ends up in Wallace at least by 1955, because that's when he was arrested again for issuing checks without funds. So he was arrested and sentenced to Deer Lodge, actually, for forgery, or Montana State Penitentiary, I should say, for forgery and a prior conviction. He was sentenced to 10 years at the time uh, as number 17362. And while he is imprisoned, his mother does pass away in 1958. And with this, we see another escape attempt. So 1958, he does escape from the Montana State Penitentiary. The Daily Interlake, a newspaper from Kalispell, Montana, wrote, quote, two hours of awfully expensive freedom for Ralph Point Dexter, 25, state prison registrar's office trustee, ended in a 120 mile per hour chase down U.S. Highway 10 yesterday. 120 miles per hour. Wow. In 1958. I did not know if cars could even go that fast in 1958. It's downhill. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but going back, uh, quote, Deputy Warden T.J. Roth, I'm going to say Roth, said Point Dexter, serving a term for previous conviction, slipped from the registrar's vault to brief freedom yesterday. Roth said that Point Dexter, whose home is in Hamilton, was brought in by state patrolman after patrolman Marvin Dogel chased him five miles down the slippery highway. Point Dexter's luck ran out all at once. The stolen 1954 Cadillac he was allegedly driving slipped from the road in front of a roadblock set up by patrolman D.E. Allen at Clinton. Also reported in figuring in the capture was the Cadillac on the stolen report, which led to the patrolman's recognition of Point Dexter. It was reported stolen at 4 p.m. At 6 p.m., Point Dexter was back at the prison, where he admitted, Ruth said, that his escape was foolish. Now he faces charges of escape and stealing a car, Ruth said. Ruth also said that for Point Dexter, it was an awful expense of two hours. He was sentenced to an additional year for using an automobile without the consent of owner. And then his final prisoner number at Deer Lodge is number 19229. So another escape attempt (laughs) using an automobile. And yeah, that 120 mile per hour chase, it's something that just blows my mind (laughs) because that's so fast. fast. And I, I feel like if you're in that area, that's not a straight... 
shot. These are white. Yeah. Yeah. Highway In Montana, tent. it's. Stop. Yeah. So it's. Yeah. He's brave. He's yeah. brave. <laughs> he's brave to say the least. And, and, you know, I think the other thing that I like to point out with this escape attempt is that he was working as a trustee. So he was, again, on kind of better behavior, was on the straight and narrow. And then I think there's just that impulse. Maybe it was with finding out that his mother passed away or something that he just took off and had a, a, quote, expensive two hours. (laughs) Um, But regardless, uh, kind of going back to him, he was released in April 1960 and ended up in Idaho, where he was arrested and convicted of forgery in 1960 in Shoshone County. So he is sentenced to more than five years, and his prisoner number for his first conviction in Idaho is number 10559. So he is released about a year later in 1961 and was immediately sent to Blackfoot Hospital, mental hospital. He is released from Blackfoot at some point by 1962 because he does, again, plead guilty from stealing a car from Montana. And then at the time, he was sent to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Kansas for the direct yet again. He was released from Leavenworth in 1964. So he has a year of freedom, which is a long time for him. And I, I, I guess I shouldn't say it that way, but really, given his record, it's like, oh, my gosh, that's that is a long time for him. But he was ordered to appear on a charge of reckless driving in Idaho. He was actually arrested in Butte, Montana in November 1965 after authorities were tipped off from Rupert County authorities. Point Dexter was charged with writing a bad check as well. So he was sent to solitary confinement at the Minidoka County Jail. And this is where we see another escape attempt. So he was sent to the Minidoka County Jail and he ends up escaping for the first time on December 13th with Eugene Schmidt. So the two had stolen a man by the name of Melvin Madsen's car. So they stole his car and they take off and they're recaptured about two days later. So the two are sent to solitary confinement and they end up cutting through their solitary confinement bars on December 19th, again 1965, and escape again. But this time, they bring four other prisoners with them by using a set of keys and map that Schmidt and Point Dexter used in their previous escape. And one of these individuals is Dennis Clark, who is also a repeat escape artist. And I don't know if they stole the keys from a guard or if they made them. I forget. I was listening to another podcast a couple weeks ago, and they had talked about an escape attempt from some international prison where the, I think it was in France, where the prisoners were given baby bell cheese and they actually took the wax from the outside of the baby bell and turned it into keys. And so this one prisoner in France was able to escape using this wax key that he had made. So I don't know if that's what they did. I I don't think so, but that we, yeah. So, <laughs> we are trying to get into the <laughs> to get east wing the of Two House, east and we don't have a key to that first floor yeah. thing. I'm going to start buying some baby bells. We're going to figure out how to... The weekend staff are just going to yeah. work on... Oh <laughs> We're going to be oh making our keys in our free time. Yeah. Genius. Okay. Maybe so, we'll yeah. Maybe that's how we'll do it. Yeah. Oh, I guess, yeah. How, how y'all will finally do it. But when you guys do get in there, please let me know because I'd love sure. to see it Absolutely. <laughs> at yes. some point. <laughs> but while after escaping, they steal Melvin Madsen's car again. And it's reported that in early January, so just a couple of days later, that Point Dexter was arrested in Bakersfield, California by attempting a burglary. But several other newspapers claim that he was found in Colorado. But the Idaho Statesman specifically points to Bakersfield, California. So where there's a discrepancy, I'm not quite sure. But he was found in a state with starting with C, I guess. So Colorado or California, one of the two. But either way, he was he was found and arrested. And then after being picked up, he was sent to San Quentin, actually, on an Idaho retainer, likely for, again, violating the Dire Act. 
and then was sent to Idaho in 1967 to serve on two escape charges and a grand larceny charge. His sentence in Idaho was 14 years for grand larceny and a term not to exceed five years for escape. And at the time, his new prisoner number was 12596. So in 1969, he was actually working in the prison kitchen. That was one of his primary jobs at the Idaho State Penitentiary, working in the dining hall, working in the kitchen. But in 1969, he was actually sent to the hospital after being found stabbed in the prison kitchen. And there's, again, not too many details about the stabbing. Pretty much someone found him stabbed and he was on the floor and I assume trying to get away or trying to find help but again not too many details and prior he actually had above average work reports and at some points worked in the kitchen at Eagle Island as a trusty prisoner but he was actually found stabbed in the main prison kitchen so I think he was kind of one of the subs at Eagle Island if one of the trustees had escaped. I wasn't quite sure about that part because it shows that he had worked in both kitchens, but kitchen work kind of was his thing. Uh, But he recovers from the stabbing and he actually joined the Table Rock JCs. And this group actually really, they they found him to be very beneficial, interesting, um, and they felt that he had a lot to give, especially with his speeches and his writing. So they actually sponsored him to travel to high schools and Mountain Home Air Force Base to discuss drug abuse and the physical, psychological, and legal repercussions, all of which he had experienced. And some of the areas that he actually traveled to included Rexburg and St. Anthony's, where he was as a kid. So they really him and helped support this drug abuse program and provided $50 actually to have him travel uh, being escorted by prison guard to help fund this program. So while traveling, he was escorted by guard Glenn Pierce and would be housed in both the Rexburg and St. Anthony County Jail, the county jails in those areas. But one letter actually from Glenn Jeffries which I assume was either another guard or was a guard. Okay, so so Glenn Jeffries actually highlighted that Point Dexter had received many letters commending his speeches to these groups and that he related pretty well to the high schoolers. So Jeffries, Jeffries, he actually recommended him for an award because of this work. And so it, it does seem like he really kind of did care about those youth and wanted to make sure that they wouldn't follow his path as well. But by May 1970, he was working in the prison's main kitchen and had earned a minimum security placement. So according to this work report, he appeared to be turning a corner. In June, he was also listed in the clock sports section with the Embassy's baseball team, uh, winning second place. So in July, the clock also published an article about a speech he gave at a JCs meeting. The compelling speech actually prompted the JCs to establish a committee and plan to educate the community about drugs. So through his speeches, we see this. We see the Table Rock JCs actually forming into this organization that really, not not combating against drug use, but really educating and there's you know a huge difference in those things with education it it goes a long way and so i found that to be really really interesting and pretty awesome of that that organization idea for the prison to allow you know spreading this this deterrent kind of speeches for youth groups as well like yeah yeah well and I will say, I, I did also find that with another prisoner who I have researched, who is part of the Minidoka 6. He also traveled to Boise State, which I believe at the time was Boise College, Boise Junior College, and spoke to college students about drug use because the Minidoka 6 were also involved in drugs. As yeah, we'll definitely so. cover that. That is such a fascinating thing. There's literally a book written about yeah. them. So yeah, yeah, we'll definitely cover them in the future. Yeah. No, it's 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 a really interesting group. 
after this speech, we don't really see too much else from Point Dexter throughout the summer, but in January 1971, he did actually receive an award. It was the Spark Plug Award during the third annual Table Rock JC's Charter Banquet. I'm not quite sure what that award means, but I do suspect that it was something for bright speeches or something to do with his speaking, something of that sort. But then in June, of 1971, we see another escape attempt, and this time it's a lot more serious. So in June 1971, he does escape with John Jesse Romero and Philip Mendy, and the trio actually ends up taking Dale Adams, a local Boise man, as a hostage. So the three men walked off of a work detail as they were working in the prison dining hall. How they got over the wall it wasn't quite clear to me. It just said that they worked off of a work detail at the prison. Now, part of me wants, part of me questions whether this was actually at the prison or if it was at Eagle Island Trustee Farm, because a lot of the escape attempts that we do see are from prisoners yeah. walking off from their work site. But because they took Dale Adams as hostage in Boise, another part of me suspects it was actually from the prison. But regardless, they approached the Adams trailer home in Boise and Romero asked to use the phone. After being told that the family did not have one, Mendy actually put a shotgun to Mrs. Adams' head. They forced her and her son inside and then forced Mr. Adams, so Dale Adams, to lie down or face down on the floor. Judy, their daughter, came into the room at which point Point Dexter asked if Dale Adams had a gun, and he said that he did have a 22 pistol. In later reports in newspapers, Mr. Adams said that she was forced to serve the trio coffee and cigarettes during this holdup and hostage situation. So eventually they do force Mr. Adams out of his trailer home and into the front seat of the Adams yellow family Ford. I think part of this is because they're trying to steal his car because at the time they don't have a vehicle. The three men had stolen weapons from the Boise Gun Club. So in some some time throughout this escape attempt, they go there, break in, steal these guns, but they don't have the ammunition to it. So it was more of a show than anything. Mm-hmm. But... Mr. Adams claims that he was treated quite well, and while he was terrified, the men did allow him to call his wife and his work to let them know what kind of what was going on and that he was safe and unharmed. But neither of those calls went through. The three men, or now four, uh, drove east towards Idaho Falls, drinking beer that they stole also from the Boise Gun Club. Of course. So (laughs) there's, they're just kind of going for a joyride and mr adams dale adams he actually does report later that he drank with them because Mm -hmm. he felt as if you know if he went along with it and acted in good faith that he would remain relatively unharmed point dexter at one point um went into a gas station and used a stolen credit card to purchase more beer and a pair of sunglasses as well and at one point Dale Adams also does report that the way that Point Dexter walked into the gas station and came out with these sunglasses, you would have thought he was Jesus himself by the way that he was acting and just so um, arrogant about this escape and these activities, you know. So again, Mr. Adams participated in a lot of these or some of these activities as a hostage just to show good faith to his captors. He said, quote, I think that's one of the reasons things turned out all right. I kidded with them, end quote. Romero and Mendy were captured in Reary, um, which is a small town in southeastern Idaho, after hiring a taxi in the town. So this taxi driver knows that the police are on the lookout for them, and they try to hire a taxi in town. But Point Dexter was actually captured in Idaho Falls when police approached his alleged girlfriend's home. And this is the first time I actually see mention of a romantic interest for him and some type of girlfriend. So... Mm -hmm. That was really interesting to me. To my knowledge, he was never married or had really any 
romantic interests other yeah. than just this one mention. Did were there any letters in his file or anything or I actually didn't see hardly any letters yeah. except for from an LDS bishop and an LDS family. So no letters from really anyone, which is a bit strange because of how often, you know, he's reported and mm-hmm. writing in the clock. So yeah. I think he might have just, I don't know if they were discharged with him when he left, mm-hmm. but that might have been something that had happened. I don't know. Falls. Maybe it was an old girlfriend and yeah. just somebody pre, pre-incarceration that he mm-hmm. had a relationship and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, strange. Yeah. Interesting. Something. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So he's, re- he's returned back to the prison. So in September 1971, after the escape and kidnapping, three men were, of course, charged with escape, robbery, grand larceny, and second-degree kidnapping. Mm-hmm. And all three men waived their preliminary hearing rights. So Point Dexter returns to the prison, and he worked in the prison's kitchen. He did lose his minimum security custody, so he was moved to a closer watch, so the prison guards had to keep better eye on him. He lost some privileges. But he did appear to be doing a good job despite this escape and kidnapping. And the prison committee moved to make his kitchen assignment permanent. So he would continue working in the kitchen throughout the rest of his incarceration. So on October 29th, the prison held a banquet for prisoners receiving awards for sports they played in 1971. And sports, as we know, were a really important part of the prison. All sorts of different sports. And then on Labor Day, when they had that... It was a Labor Day event where they had lots of different sports, such as track and field, mm-hmm. um, boxing. I've, of course, baseball is one of our more famous sports, football, basketball. But they have this uh, sports award, and it's one of the first that I've seen in in these reports. But the Idaho Statesman reported that the night climaxed when Carl Cox was named to the ISP, Idaho State Penitentiary, Hall of Fame. Mike Woodridge, Table Rock JC president, presented the trophy. The banquet was sponsored by the Inmate Advisory Council Sports Committee, and this committee consisted of a handful of prisoners, Carrie Harrison, Paul Hatton, and Mike Woodridge. But other clubs were also represented by their presidents. So this included the Mexican-American club, who was represented by Frank Signazai. That's so re- really, really interesting name there. And then the Gavel Club, which mm. was represented by Ralph Point Dexter. And so that's how he comes into this. But someone that night had remarked that if some of the young men had received these awards in high school, they may not be receiving them now. So a couple months after this um, banquet, Ralph Point Dexter is sent to Blackfoot for a court-ordered evaluation by Prosecutor W.E. Smith. Now, again, not much is known as to why it was an evaluation. So I think it's, it did have something to do with either his drug use or with this escape attempt. But at Blackfoot, he did escape with Leslie David Evening in January 1972. Evening, Leslie David Evening, was returned shortly, but Point Dexter was at large for several months. So he is regarded as dangerous um, at the time by the warden. But a couple, or a month later, in February 1972, uh, John Jesse Romero and Philip Mendy did plead guilty to the escape and robbery charges, and the prosecutor did drop the charges of kidnapping against the pair. So in May of 1972, so about five, six, or four or five months later, Point Dexter was recaptured and received a charge of failure to appear for the court hearing that occurred while he was at large from Blackfoot. So since he had escaped from there and was gone, he did receive another charge. So he was sentenced to an additional five years. It's a long time. (laughs) So pretty much from like, so he's born in 32. Mm Mm-hmm. His first incarceration is in like 1950. 1947 is oh, when he's first sent to right. St. Anthony's. And he's basically spent from 47 onward, except for like a year out mm-hmm. in and out of institutions. That is so much. 
much time. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, and it it is, it is a lot of time. And I think that's something that, you know, it does speak, I feel like to a certain point about this prison, um, because while he is here from what I've seen, he does seem to be turning a corner Mm -hmm. with, without some of the escapes. Um, and he does serve a lot longer sentences at the Idaho State Penitentiary than at any other prison than um, he had before. So it it does speak a little bit differently about, um, I think, him. But then I think also to a certain degree it does speak true to sometimes institutionalization through prisons Mm -hmm. and that this is a really pivotal time in prisons where we do start to see reform movements and especially so starting in the 1950s even a little bit in the 1940s that's when vocational training became really um, heavily emphasized but then definitely in the 1960s where there's a lot more support and interest in psychological um, developments and betterment for prisoners and then in the 1970s we start to see more clubs and more organizations and you know, the effects of these previous studies being done on prisoners. So, yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. So either way, <laughs> um, but in uh, after his return, um, he is assigned to work in the prison kitchen. So he returns back. Um, and then in June, we do see a little bit of a disturbance. This is the only disturbance I actually have on him while he was actually in prison. And he asked to be moved to Five House, uh, which is maximum security for voluntary segregation, because he was concerned about this poker game that he had been involved in. Um, he was responsible for keeping the books and someone was unable to pay their debt. And so he was to be held responsible and he also didn't have the money to pay for their debt. So he was a little bit in fear of his life, Um, but he does end up being removed eventually from five house. So he, he spends about 30 days in five house. Yeah, you so, had to wait for everything to cool down. Yeah, so yeah. You just don't get stabbed. A little bit of time. Else gets the well, drama and for a while. especially after I think his first stabbing in the mm-hmm. kitchen. Um, I think he's wanting to avoid. So in July, so a year later, he is sentenced to an additional ten years for robbery and escape. Uh, Ramiro and Mendy also received an additional 10 years. Um, and then Point Dexter received an additional two and a half years, so 12 years for kidnapping, and was the only one out of that trio to receive the kidnapping charge. Probably, again, because he wasn't able to appear at that court date, and those two were able to make a plea agreement, and he wasn't. Yeah. So in September 1972, the committee, the prison committee, actually moved him to a different work assignment. He um, worked in the main kitchen in 1972. So that's when he's actually released from Five House, I believe. So he receives, again, positive remarks on his work. Um, But then in March 1973, which is when we also have our large-scale riot that Mm -hmm. destroyed the dining hall and the prison chapel, the prison board did assign Point Dexter to work in the Rose Garden, and he did also receive good remarks on his work there. And I think that's because there was a little bit of a disturbance with his work in the main kitchen um, where he had talked back to a supervisor. Again, this is just my uh, suspicion, but one of the work reports I saw, uh, he received very poor remarks and very poor yeah. scores, and it was the yeah. only one of that kind. And on it, it was written, he knows why he received these remarks. And that's all that was written yeah. on it. So I think it was something like talking back or disobeying the rules, something of that sort. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, these files from like the 60s and 70s, where it it's like a monthly report and you're yeah. gauged, you know, satisfactory, you know, five to one, mm-hmm. which is like not satisfactory. And then they write all the notes and like would request a transfer to a different job. And yeah, like, so, yeah. Most of them, it's like fours or fives, and they show up on time. They consistent. do these things. They help out. And his file has so many of those. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. Something something must have gone down. Yeah. And he probably just stopped caring and or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and it, it um, 
you know, for him to be moved to the Rose Garden where he seemed to really be doing a good job in the kitchen. And the kitchen would be one of the preferred jobs here yeah. in the prison because one thing it is easier to pass contraband through because there is a lot of equipment. There's a lot of materials, knives, weapons, but then also like you're in control of the food. You get mm -hmm. to eat more. You can control what you eat and, and that your friends will sense too. of control. And, yeah. Uh, you, yeah. You can build a nice clique with uh, well-fed friends mm -hmm. and uh, defenders yes. <laughs> potentially. Yeah. All yeah. kinds of perks with that yeah. position. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the Rose Garden, I think one of the Benefits might have been, you know, it's not the hard labor of working in agriculture, like Two Yard or mm -hmm. Eagle Island Farm, and then maybe Squawky if they hide it in the Rose Garden. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But again, not, not as yeah. much as the kitchen. So a couple of months later in May of 1973, he does write a letter to the Board of Pardons about a mistake made in his files that um, stated that he would not appear before the Board of Pardons until July 1975. Um, he petitioned this mistake stating that he should appear in April of 1975 instead of July. So a couple of months previous or a couple of months before July um, in April. But then in July of 1973, so as the prison is starting to wind down, the prison hosted a Toastmasters garden party and the men discussed, quote, love, faces of mankind and Christ, end quote, with a, quote, burned out shell of a building to their right, end quote, on the prison lawn. The speakers were, mem were members of the Jaw Jackers 70, a Toastmasters International sponsored gavel club um, at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Warden Raymond May permitted outside guests for this event as a, quote, tribute to the final Rose Garden meeting of the gavel club. End quote. At this event, president of the Jawjackers, Ralph Poindexter, was awarded first place for the best prepared speech. Uh, he ends it with, life is a burden if you make it so. If you have three friends, count yourself lucky. Most men are lucky if they only have one. End quote. I love that quote. That's great. It's just, it's one of those, that, again, it, it hits you in the heart. Yeah. But Ralph was transported to the new facility, um, that new prison about 15 miles away um, from the old Idaho State Penitentiary when the prison closed in December 1973. In 1974, the prison committee continued to keep Point Texter at close custody, but by January 7th, 1975, they did choose to move him to a minimum security and at the farm housing unit. So... So in 1974, the committee continued to keep Boyd Dexter at close custody, but by January 7th, 1975, they chose to move him to minimum security and at the farm housing unit at Eagle Island um, because the prison complex had no available beds at the new facility. So his job, however, remained the same. So he was still working in the prison kitchen. Mm -hmm. So every morning, the guards would have to go out to Eagle Island, pick him up, and drive him to that new prison. So it was quite a bit of a drive, mm -hmm. um, considering it's pretty it's pretty far mm -hmm. out there, and so is Eagle Island in terms of um, distance. So he became eventually a cook supervisor and was doing a outstanding job the prison chaplain at the time worked with an LDS family that offered Point Dexter a lot of support in his attempts to be released and even offered him support in terms of housing when he was released and just moral support as well which is a little bit interesting to me because from what I read Point Dexter wasn't LDS but it did seem as if this family was just doing the goodwill out of their hearts. Like it seemed really genuine. In April 1975, he was brought before the committee as a candidate for the OG, OGT program, which seemed to be kind of an um, re-entry program. Okay. Um, so they would work out in the community and then be transported back to the prison at night. Something of that sort is kind of what I gathered from it, but there, yeah. I wasn't able to find too much information on it. 
but he did not attend this hearing, so he was denied. Uh, but the committee noted that if he received a favorable favorable hearing at the April parole board hearing, they would consider him at the time. On April uh, 24th, 1975, he was actually granted parole at that pardon board hearing, at that parole board hearing. And he had employment at the La Fiesta, um, which was at the time off of Boise Avenue. So kind of by where Boise State uh, University now is just over there (laughs) Um, under manager Hank James. And this manager really needed him at the time. The report said that he was pretty insistent on getting this prisoner employed at this La Fiesta. And I I wish it still existed at that location today. But at the time, Point Dexter didn't have any housing, so in some way they set that up with likely that LDS family who was agreeing to support him, um, and he started working at La Fiesta. Uh, The parole board also did state that Point Dexter should go to parole school, Um, so some type of educational training, and probably how it is today with parole where you report back to your parole officer but it seemed to be a lot more structured um so pretty pretty close supervision but on may 10th 1975 the fast life for point dexter came to a crashing halt as he was driving on interstate 80 about 20 miles from mountain home he fell asleep at the wheel and drifted off to the right side of the highway and hit a reflector post. He overcorrected for the drift and ran off the left side of the interstate. The car rolled four or five times, according to the Elmer County Sheriff's deputy, and threw Point Dexter out of the vehicle. He was found dead at the scene of the wreckage at 5.50 a.m. Um, His death notice stated that he obtained a skull fracture, which likely led to his death. His funeral was hosted by Humphrey's Funeral Home, and he was, or he is buried in the Pine Cemetery in Spokane, right next to his father. Wow. So, and actually with his father, so Uh, they share a headstone. Oh my gosh. So. Wow. What a story and... You know, I the ending, you know, after being in a 120-mile-per-hour car chase early yeah. in his life, it's, it's, it's not a surprise, unfortunately. No. Um, but, man, what a way to, to go. Yeah. Well, and it, it seems also just really ironic. Um, again, it's not really surprising, but it seems like one of those things where it's like, oh, he was doing so good. Yeah, yeah he was um, starting to pick himself back up and yeah. get back acclimated into regular society. And yeah. Well, and it get was, away from institutions. Like, you know, 15, 16 days after being released from prison, after spending years mm-hmm. and years incarcerated. So, but yeah, we here at the old Idaho Penitentiary, we do also have his cell noted which is in three house it's on the first floor of three house it is four it was it's cell number four so um if you do visit you can check that out and see it see his mugshot a lot of the pictures that i found of him are really dark and really blurry and so it's really hard to kind of get a good look at what he looked like but yeah it's he's he's just a fascinating person and it's it's been very interesting to research him and uh, his story is one of my one of my favorites now and I really try to mention it on my tours especially along with talking about George Hamilton with drug use and alcohol use and drug addiction because recently I did find in a clock article that we did actually have Alcoholics Anonymous started in May of 1948 Mm -hmm. and finding that was like Oh my goodness, so late, but yeah. like at least we have it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been very fascinating. Yeah. Wow, oh, what an interesting story. Great work trying to catalog that whole life of, yeah. of crime and incarceration <laughs> and his speeches. Like for somebody who seems pretty 
kind of an uh, on the outskirts, kind yeah. of an outlaw. You yeah. Know, to be such an eloquent speaker. Right. That's and and for him to right. to pursue that and become the president of the Jawjackers and like these different organizations. Yeah. That's so outward facing. Mm-hmm. Is kind of kind of interesting. I yeah, see, a fascinating character. Yeah, well, and to have also more of a um, vocational education uh, from St. Anthony's, and probably, if I'm being honest, not that great as far as academics go, and being able to still speak, I think I think he probably had a lot of things to say, just didn't know how to say it yeah. um, in that moments, but when it was prepared, he. He was a poet. He was, you know, yeah. he spoke with such poignance. And it, yeah, that, mm-hmm. that one quote about, you know, life is a burden. If you've got a couple friends, you're lucky. Most most only are lucky to have one. And I'm yeah. like, I think I think that's really how he felt, too, while he was here. So Yeah, absolutely. Well, great yeah. work, Camille. Well, thank you. Nice. So. Well, if anyone wants to chat with Camille, she will actually be working at the Idaho State Museum. She is leaving us, which is very sad. If I were to say do your own time, how would you respond to that? Well, I've listened to the podcast, so it's a bit hard. Um, (laughs) Currently wearing a shirt with... I know. uh, (laughs) Well, what would you, what would you, how would you respond? What is the convict code to you? Keep your head up. Keep your head up. Yeah. That is... Keep your own time, keep your head up. I love it. Yeah. Excellent. All right, everybody, do your own time. Keep your head up. Do your own number. We will talk to you next week. Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pop.